This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that. Delivered it, at TED conferences around the world. The gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. If somebody came up to you and asked you what your identity was, how would you answer that question? I would probably say, I'm not my body. This is Janine Shepard. And from the time Janine was young, it was clear she was born an athlete. So I started as a a sprinter, a runner, and all sorts of track and field events. But I really found my way when I got into cross-country skiing probably because I had an extremely high oxygen uptake. So I was the highest recorded level in Australia for a VO2 max for a female athlete. You know, my goal was to not just get to the Olympics, but to really show the world that we could be the best at winter sports. And I'd been sort of taken under the wing of the Canadian ski team and invited to train with them in the lead up to the Olympics. So... In 1986, you know, everything was just, all the planets were aligned, and I thought, this is it. (laughs) You know, this is everything I've worked for my entire life. And I was on top of the world. And when people, and people who knew you then, Janine, they would identify you, they'd be like, oh, there's Janine, that great athlete. Like, (laughs) when people came up to you, would they talk to you about, like, what are you doing in sport? Well, yes, always. And, of course, my nickname was Janine the Machine. Wow. <laughs> Which probably doesn't sound flattering, but I thought it was great. Yeah. It rhymed. Yeah. <laughs> you were the machine. I was the machine. So your entire identity was wrapped up in your physical prowess and your natural gifts as, as an athlete. Everything. Every moment of every day was about the next training session. But that identity and Janine's entire life were about to change forever. Here's Janine Shepard on the TED stage. As a cross-country skier and member of the Australian ski team headed towards the Winter Olympics, I was on a training bike ride with my fellow teammates. As we made our way up towards the spectacular Blue Mountains west of Sydney, it was the perfect autumn day. We'd been on our bikes for around five and a half hours when we got to the part of the ride that I loved, and that was the hills, because I loved the hills. And I got up off the seat of my bike, and I started pumping my legs, and as I sucked in the cold mountain air, I could feel it burning my lungs. And I looked up to see the sun shining in my face. And then everything went black. I'd been hit by a speeding utility truck with only 10 minutes to go on the bike ride. I was airlifted from the scene of the accident by a rescue helicopter to a large spinal unit in Sydney. I'd broken my neck and my back in six places. I broke five ribs on my left side. I broke my right arm. I broke my collarbone. I broke some bones in my feet. My whole right side was ripped open, filled with gravel. My head was cut open across the front, lifted back, exposing the skull underneath. I had internal injuries. I had massive blood loss. In fact, I lost about five litres of blood, which is all someone my size would actually hold. 
By the time the helicopter arrived at Prince Henry Hospital in Sydney, my blood pressure was 40 over nothing. I was having a really bad day. What do you remember about the period afterwards, about, about waking up? Did you think that things were going to change or did you think that you were going to recover and get back to where you were? First thing I remember is being confused because mm. during the 10 days, which I tell people was my death experience, I remember very clearly not wanting to return to my body. Mm. I remember thinking, that body's broken and mm. <laughs> can no longer serve me. I also remember that it was my choice to return. And even though I knew that I was returning to a broken body, when I did wake up in hospital, there was a, a level of confusion and an enormous pain. Yeah. I had so many injuries that it was just inescapable. It's like your body was this vessel, Janine the machine, right? And you sort of commanded it. Your whole being oversaw this thing that was so effective. And then you found yourself in a position where you didn't have that control over this machine in quite the same way. Um, how did you begin to start to realize that that identity that you had was inevitably going to change? It took some time because my body was the way that I defined myself, the way that people saw me. Yeah. And I'd always been able to control every aspect of my life. So this was the first time I had no control. I, mean, I was lying paralyzed in an intensive care unit, and people telling me that I wasn't going to walk again. Yeah. And typical to me, <laughs> I, you know, I just I didn't listen. I thought, no, they're wrong. Hmm. So it took a long time. I mean, I spent almost six months in the spinal ward and got out in a wheelchair, and I kept thinking, no, they're wrong. They can't be right. This, this is the sort of thing that happens to someone else. Yeah. And then I got home, and that's when it really hit me. All the reminders of my life, all of my friends were off skiing and racing and there I was in a wheelchair, in a, my body was wrapped in a plaster body cast, I was attached to a catheter bottle, I couldn't walk, I couldn't move my legs, I had no feeling from the waist down and that was my rock bottom. And I realised, yeah, this is, they're right, you know, my life as I knew it is over. How old were you? I was 24. I think the thing that... To lose the thing that you think defines you is the very thing that will teach you not just who you are, but who you're not. And I also think that you don't really know how strong you are until being strong is the only choice that you have. Over the course of our entire lives, we don't always stay the same exact person. We're humans. We change. We shed parts of our old selves and embrace new ones. We redefine who we are and the different identities we present to the world. So on the show today, we're going to explore this idea of the person we are and the person we become. And for Janine Shepard, 
that change wasn't really a choice. The pain of holding on to who I thought I was was so great that it was untenable. And the only choice for me, I decided, was to let go and to trust life. So I let go. You sort of said, okay, a part of who I am, I'm leaving behind. And I'm now going to find the next version of me. Exactly. And I thought that my strength was tied up to my body. And to now go out into the world with a body that didn't look like everybody else's, and people would stare all the time, that took an enormous amount of courage. Yeah. And it gave me a lot of confidence. I mean, the life-changing moment for me, of course, was sitting outside in my wheelchair when an aeroplane flew over. And I decided that I would, if I couldn't walk, then I would fly. I said, Mum, I'm going to learn how to fly. She said, that's nice, dear. I said, pass me the yellow pages. She's passed me the phone book. I rang up the flying school. I made a booking. I said, I'd like to make a booking to come out for a flight. They said, do you know, do, when do you want to come out? I said, well, I have to get a friend to drive me out because I can't drive. <laughs> sort of can't walk either. <laughs> Is that a problem? I made a booking. And weeks later, my friend Chris and my mum drove me out to the airport, all 80 pounds of me, covered in a plaster body cast in a baggy pair of overalls. Finally, this guy comes out. He goes, hi, I'm Andrew, and I'm going to take you flying. I go, great. So they get me out on the tarmac, and there was this red, white, and blue airplane. It was beautiful. Andrew, the instructor, got in the front, started the airplane up. He said, would you like to have a go at taxiing? That's when you use your feet to control the rudder pedals, to control the airplane on the ground. I said, no, <laughs> I can't use my legs. I said, but I can use my hands. And he said, OK. And as we took off down the runway, and the wheels lifted up off the tarmac, and we became airborne, I had the most incredible sense of freedom. And Andrew said to me, you see that mountain over there? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, you take the controls and you fly towards that mountain. And as I looked up, I realized that he was pointing towards the Blue Mountains where the journey had begun. And I took the controls and I was flying. Okay, so you didn't just become a pilot. You went on to become a commercial pilot, uh, then an aerobatics flying instructor, and then the first female director of the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. It's almost like the Olympic athlete version of you never really left. Like, I mean, you achieve all of these things, but in a completely different realm. I know. I'm still Janine the Machine. <laughs> You're right. You are. <laughs> you really are. But it's not with my body. I don't... Uh, the way I communicate with the world now is not through my body. Yeah. I think it's through my heart. And I think that, you know, I'm a much better person post-accident than I was before. Mm. Do you remember a moment, and it may have been years later, where you realized that you had embodied this different identity, that you had become almost a, a different version of yourself? I'm not sure when that moment would have come, but I couldn't have imagined a more different life than the one that I'd planned. And I think that, for me anyway, my takeaway is that that life is about loosening our grip. 
You know, we suffer when we hold on to things and we hold on to things because we're just unsure. You know, what happens if I do step off? And I know that it's in the letting go that we really experience who we can be. And life is different. I mean, life certainly is different for me after my spinal cord injury. But it's still magnificent and incredible and and fascinating and curious. And it's just a different life. That's Janine Shepard. After years of rehabilitation, Janine did regain some ability to walk. Today, she shares her story as a public speaker and through her memoir, Defiant. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, The Person You Become. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Hotel Tonight, an app that makes it easy to book awesome hotels at amazing rates. They're basically a matchmaker between top-rated hotels that have unsold rooms and people who want to book those rooms. And even though the name's Hotel Tonight, you can actually book in advance. To start scoring great deals at hotels you actually want to stay at, download the Hotel Tonight app right now. Thanks also to Hubble Contacts, offering quality daily lenses sent directly to you at a low price. It's an affordable, convenient solution for anyone who's overpaid for uncomfortable contact lenses or has overworn them to save money. To give them a try, go to hubblecontacts.com, sign up, and enjoy your first two weeks of lenses, that's 15 pairs of lenses, for free. Remember to select TED Radio Hour at checkout. A man waits 70 years for an apology from Japan. He's about to give up hope. Until... This is the moment that I really, really want to make a difference. Only one person, housewife. The story of an apology so delicate, it gets its own broker. This week on Rough Translation. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, the person you become. How over the course of our entire lives we reevaluate and redefine our identity. You know, I think identity is all the things that make us who we are. And some of those things are mutable and some of them are immutable. This is Roxane Gay. She's a writer and a professor of English at Purdue University. I think that there are things that shape who we are, um, where we come from, where our families come from, and the culture that we're raised with. But then there are also the expectations of others. And what people expect from certain identity markers. Identity markers like feminism and the expectations and assumptions that other people have about what it means to be a feminist. And it's something Roxanne has thought and written a lot about. Here she is on the TED stage. I'm a feminist, but I'm a rather bad one. Oh, so I call myself a bad feminist. Or at least I wrote an essay, and then I wrote a book called Bad Feminist, and then in interviews, people started calling me the bad feminist. (laughs) So what started as a bit of an inside joke with myself has become a thing. Let me take a step back. When I was younger, mostly in my teens and 20s, 
I had strange ideas about feminists as hairy, angry, man-hating, sex-hating women, as if those are bad things. <laughs> These days, I look at how women are treated the world over, and anger in particular seems like a perfectly reasonable response. But back then, I worried about the tone people used when suggesting I might be a feminist. The feminist label was an accusation. It was an F word and not a nice one. When you're younger, you think you know everything. Mm -hmm. And I certainly did throughout my teens and 20s. And throughout my 30s and my early 40s, I have found that I don't know everything and that it's okay not to know everything. I think I've also become a lot less myopic, and I recognize that uh, even if I'm not experiencing a given struggle, that doesn't mean I shouldn't care or can't do anything about it. As I got older, I began to accept that I am indeed a feminist and a proud one. But let me be clear, I'm a mess. I am full of contradictions. There are many ways in which I'm doing feminism wrong. When I drive to work, I listen to thuggish rap at a very loud volume. <laughs> I firmly believe in man work, which is anything I don't want to do, including <laughs> all domestic tasks, but also bug killing, trash removal, lawn care, and vehicle maintenance. Pink is my favorite color. I watch The Bachelor and romantic comedies, and I have absurd fantasies about fairy tales coming true. Some of my transgressions are more flagrant. If a woman wants to take her husband's name, that is her choice and it is not my place to judge. If a woman chooses to stay home to raise her children, I embrace that choice too. When we talk about the needs of women, we have to consider the other identities we inhabit. We are not just women. We are people with different bodies, gender expressions, faiths, sexualities, class backgrounds, abilities, and so much more. We need to take into account these differences and how they affect us as much as we account for what we have in common. Without this kind of inclusion, our feminism is nothing. If you were to, somebody would say, how, what is your identity? How do you identify yourself? What would you say? Uh, I would say that I identify myself as a Haitian-American woman, bisexual, and writer. Those are all the things that I think are most important to my identity. Do you think your writing has helped you understand um, these other aspects and, and parts of your identity? Oftentimes throughout my life, writing has helped me figure things out. I have written my way to the answers that I need. And I teach uh, creative writing in the MFA program. So mostly it's fiction workshops. Oh, yeah. And last year, um, not last year, my first year at Purdue, I taught a fiction workshop on writing outside of your subject position. And mm. so for each of the stories the students produced, they had to write from an experience that they did not know. And at first there was a lot of resistance um, in that, you know, they didn't want to be told what to write about. But I was just like, you can literally write about anything. <laughs> you just can't write me a story about a white man if you're a white man. <laughs> <laughs> but once they got into it, they really started to think about like what fiction can be and what fiction can do. And they ended up each producing really complex and provoking, challenging work that I appreciated very much. It was, I was really proud of what they did. 
The last line of my book, Bad Feminist, says, I would rather be a bad feminist than no feminist at all. This is true for so many reasons, but first and foremost, I say this because once upon a time, my voice was stolen from me, and feminism helped me to get my voice back. There was an incident. I call it an incident so I can carry the burden of what happened. Some boys broke me when I was so young, I did not know what boys can do to break a girl. They treated me like I was nothing, but I had writing. And there, I wrote myself back together. I read the words of women who might understand a story like mine, and women who looked like me, and understood what it was like to move through the world with brown skin. I read the words of women who showed me I was not nothing. I learned to write like them, and then I learned to write as myself. I found my voice again, and I started to believe that my voice is powerful beyond measure. Do any of your identities, I mean, writer, feminist, um, Haitian-American, um, you know, all these different identities that you have, do, do any of them conflict, like ever conflict? Um, it's not that they conflict necessarily, but there are definitely days when I don't know which identity to lead with in a given space mm. <laughs> because... And, and this is like why we talk in feminism about intersectionality, mm. because we have multiple identities and my blackness informs my womanness, informs my sexuality, informs my political outlook, informs my work. And so it's not I can't separate any of it, but there are definitely days when um, I'm pulled in multiple directions. How do you, how do you sort of think of you? Sometimes you hear people say, "Well, I have no identity. I'm a human, or I'm right." Yeah, <laughs> that's nonsense. Yeah, that's what white people say hmm. because they can afford to. Hmm. Because no one is ever going to question that they belong in a given space. It shows what power does to identity. Power makes you feel like you belong everywhere. And that is actually the underpinning of colonialism. Hmm. So the two are intertwined. But for some of us, it makes us recognize the limits of our power. And for others, it makes people think that there is no limit to their power. Roxanne Gay, she's a writer and a professor of English. Her most recent book is a collection of stories about the Haitian diaspora experience. It's called IET. You can see her entire talk at TED.com. When I say the word identity, um, what what does that word mean to you? I mean, I suppose it should mean a great deal to me since I spent so much time thinking and writing about it. (laughs) But I suppose the reason I've spent all that time thinking and writing about it is because it's never meant very much to me at all. This is author Tae Selassie. So my sort of identities, the multiple choice of identities available to me. You've got passport color, you've got where your parents were born, you've got where you were born. What does that mean? Is that my identity? Is it just this plus this plus this plus this plus this? Because once you've added all that up, what do you have? And Ty has always been kind of bothered by the way we identify ourselves. The questions we're supposed to ask, the answers we're expected to give and how that picture doesn't necessarily match the person. And it's something she had to confront a few years ago when she went on her first book tour. Tai Selassie picks up the story from the TED stage. Every talk in every country began with an introduction. 
and every introduction began with a lie. Taye Selassie comes from Ghana and Nigeria, or Taye Selassie comes from England and the States. Whenever I heard this opening sentence, no matter the country that concluded it, I thought, but that's not true. Yes, I was born in England and grew up in the United States. My mom, born in England and raised in Nigeria, currently lives in Ghana. My father was born in Gold Coast, a British colony raised in Ghana, and has lived for over 30 years in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. For this reason, my introducers also called me multinational. But Nike is multinational, I thought. I'm a human being. Then, one fine day, mid-tour, suddenly it hit me. I'm not multinational. I'm not a national at all. How could I come from a nation? How can a human being come from a concept? It's a question that had been bothering me for going on two decades. To say that I came from a country suggested that the country was an absolute, some fixed point in place and time, a constant thing. But was it? In my lifetime, countries had disappeared, Czechoslovakia, appeared, Timor-Leste, failed, Somalia. My parents came from countries that didn't exist when they were born. To me, a country, this thing that could be born, die, expand, contract, hardly seemed the basis for understanding a human being. History was real, cultures were real, but countries were invented. I mean, you must get that question all the time. Like, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And, and presumably you cringe every time you get that question. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny, Guy. When I was um, growing up in the 1980s, the version of that question, where are you from, most commonly posed to me was, what are you? Mm. Which, which is actually the more jarring formulation. Yeah. You know, what are you? It's sort of like, well, I'm not an alien. What, 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 what am I meant to reply? Until I began to question the question back, if you see what I mean, mm. and that happened only in my, in my late 20s, I was really burdened by the interrogation. I really was, Guy, and I think that's because I always felt in some self-conscious way that I didn't know It was really troubling to be asked that question, I think, every day of my life, thousands upon thousands of times. And I think I used to feel embarrassed. I used to feel exposed or somehow caught out. I used to feel the other people who could answer that question very simply and very quickly were in a position of power relative Mm -hmm. to me because they had a home and a home is a helpful thing and I did not is how I felt about it. But I came to a moment where I thought, well, no, you don't have a home, Taye. I just had to confront it, get over it, and ask myself what kind of being, what kind of becoming, Mm -hmm. what kind of human experience lies on the other side. And that's what changed how I feel about the question. All experience is local. All identity is experience. I'm not a national. I'm a local. I'm multi-local. See, I have no relationship with the United States, all 50 of them. Not really. 
My relationship is with Brookline, the town where I grew up, with New York City, where I started work, with Lawrenceville, where I spend Thanksgiving. What makes America home for me is not my passport or accent, but these very particular experiences. Despite my pride in Eve culture, the black stars, and my love of Ghanaian food, I've never had a relationship with the Republic of Ghana writ large. My relationship is with Accra, where my mother lives, where I go each year. These are the places that shape my experience. My experience is where I'm from. What if we asked, instead of where are you from, where are you a local? The difference isn't the specificity of the answer; it's the intention of the question. All of those introductions on tour began with reference to nation, as if knowing what country I came from would tell my audience who I was. What are we really seeking, though, when we ask where someone comes from? And what are we really seeing when we hear an answer? Here's one possibility: basically, countries represent power. Where are you from? Mexico, Poland, Bangladesh, less power. America, Germany, Japan, more power. You know, you, you mentioned the connection between power and identity um, when when we say I'm from this country or from that country. But what about you know your place inside that country and mm -hmm. and. Mm -hmm. The discomfort with some of the power that may come with that. Mm -hmm. So, so for example, like in the U.S., there's a a growing awareness of privilege and 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 power, and even the concept of whiteness, which you know is very challenging for. Uh, I'll just just talk about me. I'm a white man, uh, mm -hmm. or, or that's how I'm perceived. Mm -hmm. I, I recognize the conversation around privilege and, and want to be part of that conversation. But a big part of me is sort of has trouble with the knowledge mm -hmm. that I've benefited mm -hmm. from that, you know, knowing how unfair that is. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and it's all contextual. I, I mean, power and its exercise; these are shades; these are graded things. You know, just a middle class brown girl lives in a completely different space in many places than a middle class brown boy to speak nothing of a working class or an immigrant or a refugee or an unemployed brown person i mean these these layers have to be contended with and for some of us the contending is more exhausting it's more demeaning yeah And so I would say mm -hmm. you are privileged. You you have been given a power that you probably would not ask for, but you have it, and it is not a locked box. You can add nuance to that, add grace to that, move around in that space, and and think about how to be responsible about the exercise of that power, which is different than being assigned an identity that renders you powerless. Mm. Where, where, of course, you will find your voice. Of course, you can find your power. But where the struggle is, is mighty and daily and exhausting. You know, you you talked about the many different identities that we inhabit. And so, if someone you know were to ask me who is Taya Selassie, uh, I would say, well, she's a writer, an intellectual. She's lived all around the world. <laughs> would that be right? Um, yes, but not complete. Hmm. I think most of us want to access as much of ourselves as possible. Mm. And so I would be happy to be called a writer. In fact, that's the primary identity by which I know myself. Mm. 
Uh, yes, an intellectual. I'll take that. But of course, I'm also a twin, hmm. the daughter of a very proud Yoruba woman. That hmm. comes with some things. And then that woman has lived for close to two decades in Ghana, which is where my father's from. So my sense of self is hugely rooted in parts of West Africa, hence sort of my writing on this experience. And then blackness, an identity that was given to me <laughs> with no option of return mm. by the United States of America, has also become part of my consciousness in a way that is not true for all West Africans. And so I'm trying to say, who is Taye? There are so many answers and I'm happier the more answers there are. I, I would never want there to be just one. Taye Selassie is the author of the novel Ghana Must Go. You can check out her entire talk at TED.com. On the show today, The Person You Become. Stay with us. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible. Simply Safe. Home security done right. The New York Times wire cutter calls Simply Safe the best home security. Simply Safe is thoughtfully designed so you can blanket your home with protection and never notice it. There are no contracts, and CNET, the wire cutter, and PC Mag all named it their top pick for home security. Over 2 million people use it every day. Learn more about how Simply Safe can help you today. Go to simplysafe.com/slash radio hour. This is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We do long-form interviews with the people behind the best books, pop culture, journalism, and more, so you can get to know the people whose work you love. You'll find Fresh Air on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, The Person You Become. Ideas about how our identities can change, can evolve, and can be redefined. I think there are some parts of identity that could be very innate, but almost every identity really is fluid. This is Jackson Bird, and Jackson grew up in Dallas. Very Southern Baptist, evangelical area. You know, very white bread, kind of waspy. And from a pretty young age, Jackson felt out of place. You know, there were a lot of identities that I felt like I was supposed to have that I knew I didn't. And there was one in particular that Jackson felt he really didn't fit into. The gender I was assigned at birth was female, um, and that's how I was socialized and raised through adolescence. But, um, you know, I do remember, you know, from my very earliest memories, just wanting to have a short haircut, wanting to dress like the boys, um, and just not understanding really why I couldn't and, and why I was different. I tried to be a girl, you know, just dressing a little girlier and like doing things with my hair or whatever. And that kind of worked for a little bit until puberty hit. For me, what I remember was like my hips growing wider and not fitting in the jeans from the boys section anymore and just getting really, really distressed by that. I used to go home from school every day and like write about what my life would have been like if I were a boy. And in January of 2015, made the decision that I was definitely going to start hormones and come out and everything that year. And I came out as a guy, essentially, uh, when I was 25. Hi, I'm Jack, and I'm transgender. Jackson Bird picks up his story 
from the TED stage. Let me take a guess at some of the thoughts that might be running through your head right now. Transgender, wait, does that mean that they're actually a man or actually a woman? Uh, I wonder if he's had the surgery yet. Oh, oh, now I'm looking at his crotch. Look to the right, that's a safe place to look. Yes, I knew it. No real man has hips like those. My friend's daughter is transgender. I wonder if they know each other. Oh my gosh, he is so brave. I would totally support his right to use the men's bathroom. Wait, but how does he use the bathroom? How does he have sex? Being trans is awkward. And not just because the gender I was assigned at birth mismatches the one I really am. Being trans is awkward because everyone else gets awkward when they're around me. You know, people who support me and all other trans people wholeheartedly are often so scared to say the wrong thing, so embarrassed to not know what they think they should, that they never ask. How did your family react? My family was mostly cool with it. Um, my mom, I had told many years before when I was just questioning things, so yeah. she kind of had a while to, to sort of be there with me figuring it all out. Yeah. Um, my dad reacted way better than I thought. He had kind of had some inklings, and the one thing was that he didn't want me to physically transition. But I think he maybe misunderstood. I think he still sort of thought, like, oh, there's just one surgery and the results are never great. Um, I specifically remember he was worried that I wouldn't get work, which is very true for a lot of trans people. Most states don't have employment non-discrimination protections for trans people. But at the time, I had been presenting as a very masculine woman for many years, and uh, masculine presenting women tend to be treated pretty poorly in society and often in workplaces. Yeah. And shortly after I came out, I stopped getting propositioned for dates when I would be at networking events and started getting job offers. So there are obviously things you used to identify with growing up that you don't identify with now yeah. because so much of our identity when we're young is shaped by our parents and our communities. But then as you get older, you have more of a choice to define those things yourself, right? Mm -hmm. So how do you define yourself today? Hmm. I mean, I think what I usually say, because in the LGBTQ plus community, we often are asked to, to state our identities. And I'll usually say that I'm a queer, bisexual, transgender man. Although I will say that the word man doesn't quite resonate with me. Mm. If I'm filling out a form, I check mail, that's all true. But there's something about it. Maybe it's even just like toxic masculinity or just not a thing I want to be associated with. Yeah. So words like like guy is totally fine. I absolutely identify as a guy, as a dude, <laughs> but not always really as a man. Yeah, I mean, for most of modern history, right, humans have tended to see things in a pretty binary way, right? Mm -hmm. And that's starting to change. There's no question about it. But I mean, some people listening to this conversation might say, you know, look, there's no such thing as something beyond man or woman. And you may have heard that in your life as well. Absolutely. What do you say? Well, you know, I, I think across many cultures all across history, there have been genders beyond just man and woman. Mm. I definitely see male and female as constructed. That's not to say that they aren't real in various ways of expressions and roles. This is a point of tension often for trans people is, you know, if gender is a social construct, then like, why do you need to transition? Why do you feel this so deeply? And it's because even if they are social constructs, that doesn't mean that they don't exist, right? Yeah, yeah. There's so many examples of gender and sex being more of a spectrum that 
once you really dig into those, it does start to almost sound a little funny to think that there can only be two boxes. Now, because our transitions are slower and steadier than historic misconceptions can lead people to believe, there can be some confusion about when to call someone by their new name and pronouns. There's no distinct point in physical transition at which a trans person becomes their true gender. As soon as they tell you their new name and pronouns, that's when you start using that name and pronouns. And I know it can be difficult to make the change. You might slip up here and there. I've slipped up myself with other trans people. But you know, I always think to myself, if we can change from calling Puff Daddy to P Diddy, I mean, I think we can make the same effort for the real humans in our lives. Do you think that we will, in the distant future, maybe not so distant future, the, the notion of male, female, binary identities will be gone, that even in legal documents and government documents, and there, there will be multiple ways to, to identify? I mean, I, I think we're definitely seeing legal documents and, and governments around the world adding a non-gendered or non-binary or gender-neutral type of option. Mm. But, um, you know, I think there's the right to exist, and then there's the hope that there's actual acceptance and inclusivity. So I guess for me, it's like, yes, we need to have these rights, but it needs to go further than that. We need sort of the education and the representation happening in society so that there is more acceptance and compassion for people from marginalized communities of of any kind of identity. Jackson Bird, he hosts the podcast Transmission and the YouTube series Queer Story. You can see his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, ideas about the person you become. And one of the ways we identify ourselves and how others identify us can come from something as simple as the clothing we wear. To me, what I think what we wear signifies is it's just a celebration of self. This is Costa of Day. He works for Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein in India. Does that mean you get to wear all the Tommy Hilfiger and Calvin Klein apparel you want? I'm wearing it right now. Can you describe your outfit? Well, I'm wearing these uh, vintage pants that are really baggy, high-waisted, you know, like the ones from the 70s, and I'm wearing a Tommy Hilfiger t-shirt. I thought I'd be comfortable today. Tell me about how you first became drawn to fashion. When, how did that begin? By chance. I grew up in a city called Chennai in the south of India, and I had very limited exposure to anything fashion. All I knew was my school uniform. That was what I wore every day of my life. That's what I found solace in. I was not macho. I was terrible at sports. And everything that was expected of me, I failed at. And as a consequence, I was bullied. And I felt a sense of safety from looking the same as everyone else in my school uniform. And I, I chanced upon these this pair of pants that belonged to my father from his college uh, days. And it was corduroy and bell-bottomed and high-waisted. And it really struck me that if I were to wear this as opposed to my school uniform, I would look completely different from everyone else. And why should I not do that? You know, my mother had these 80s-style blouses which had the big shoulder pads, if you recall. Sure. 
She didn't want them, so she cut the shoulder pads off. And what I did was I found them fascinating, so I saved them away. And on this day, I decided I would see what would happen if I wore these black corduroy bell-bottom pants. They were too big for me. Uh, I also decided to take the shoulder pads and affix them with safety pins to the insides of my shirt. And I was really <laughs> one of the strangest things you would have ever seen. Kostov Day picks up the story from the TED stage. And once I pulled on those god-awful pants and belted them tight, almost instantly I developed what can only be called a swagger. <laughs> all the way to school, and then all the way back because I was sent home at once, I transformed into a little brown rock star. I finally didn't care anymore that I could not conform. That day, I was suddenly celebrating it. That day, instead of being invisible, I chose to be looked at. That day, I discovered the power of fashion, and I've been in love with it ever since. Fashion can communicate our differences to the world for us. And with the simple act of truth, I realized that these differences, they stopped being our shame. They became our expressions expressions of our very unique identities. How much of a connection is there between how you express yourself in fashion and in telling people who you are and what, and what, you're, what you identify with and as? I think the connection is as strong or weak as one chooses it to be. I, I chose to dress at an earlier age deliberately differently from the rest of the young boys that I was growing up with. And that was something I was trying to say. My identity at that point of time was that I'm different from you and I'm going to celebrate that. And that I did by wearing what I loved. And I felt a sense of liberation, of escape, of power from that. And fashion is what gave me that voice without words to, to, to do that. If you express it, it becomes a celebration, not an aberration. That's something that speaks to me tremendously. And what I wear and fashion has been possibly the most important factor in me being who I am today. It really does make sense, right? Because there has to be a connection between what we wear and how we start to think about, about the kind of person we are. Oh, absolutely. And even when I was young, guy, I dressed for the man I wanted to grow into. Hmm. And again, you know, I know I speak of fashion, but fashion is fashion at the end of the day. It's not that serious. What remains is the emotion that the clothes leave behind and what you want to take away from it. My grandmother was a woman who took extraordinary pleasure in dressing up. Her fashion was colorful, and the color she loved to wear so much was possibly the only thing that was truly about her. The one thing she had agency over. Because like most other women of her generation in India, she'd never been allowed to exist beyond what was dictated by custom and tradition. She'd been married at 17. And after 65 years of marriage, when my grandfather died suddenly one day, her loss was unbearable. But that day, she was going to lose something else as well. The one joy she had, to wear color. 
In India, according to custom, when a Hindu woman becomes a widow, all she's allowed to wear is white from the day of the death of her husband. She passed away this year, and until the day she died, she continued to wear only white. I have a photograph with her from earlier happier times. In it, you can't really see what she's wearing. The photo's in black and white. However, from the way she's smiling in it, you just know she's wearing color. This is also what fashion can do. It has the power to fill us with joy, the joy of freedom to choose for ourselves how we want to look, how we want to live. A freedom worth fighting for. So that choice, that choice to to change the way she dressed, completely changed her identity. Yes, yes. After her husband died, my grandfather, every identity that she had was robbed of her, and her wearing white immediately identified her in India as a widow, and her identity became one of that as a widow. What she had achieved, the family she had so lovingly nurtured, none of that mattered anymore. She was a widow with all of its baggage around it. That 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 was devastating to her. Widows in India, like my grandmother, thousands of them live in a city called Vrindavan. Only as recently as 2013, the widows of Vrindavan have started to celebrate Holi, the Indian festival of color. Which they are prohibited from participating in. On this one day in March, these women take the traditional coloured powder of the festival and colour each other. With every handful of the powder they throw into the air, their white saris slowly start to suffuse with colour, and they don't stop until they are completely covered in every hue of the rainbow that's forbidden to them. For that moment in time, it's their beautiful disruption. This disruption, any kind of dissonance, can be the first gauntlet we throw down in a battle against oppression. And this we can say without a single word. Fashion can give us a language for dissent. It can give us courage. Fashion can let us literally wear our courage on our sleeves. So wear it. Wear it like armor. Wear it because it matters, and wear it because you matter. Thank you. That's Kostov Day. You can find his full talk at TED.com. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode, The Person You Become. If you want to find out more about who was on it, go to ted.npr.org. To see hundreds more TED Talks, check out ted.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkanpour, Janae West, Neva Grant, Rund Abdel Fattah, Casey Herman, Rachel Faulkner, and Deba Motasham, with help from Daniel Shukin and Lawrence Wu. Our intern is Megan Shellon. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to Ideas Worth Spreading right here on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. <laughs>